0: Spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about. In your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. And if your credit score grows, so could your opportunities for lower rates on loans, like for a car or home. Sounds like progress, right? with chime secure credit card you can start improving your credit scores right away get started today at chime.com slash build that's chime.com slash build chime feels like progress the chime credit bill visa credit card is issued by Bancorp bank na or stride bank na members fdic out of network atm withdrawal and otc advanced fees may apply terms and conditions apply go to chime.com slash disclosures for details
1: hello my name is matt host of the pirate history podcast
0: Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 10, The Trouble with Peace. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Last week, we saw how events in Scotland played out after the pacification of Berwick. Both Charles and his Covenanter opponents agreed to disband the bulk of their forces. Several key strongholds were returned to royal control, with Patrick Riven taking command of the resupplied Edinburgh Castle. We saw how the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland met in Edinburgh and agreed with all the decisions of the last General Assembly. And then we saw how Charles and his proxy, the Earl of Traquair, tried to play for time by delaying and then proroguing the Parliament which was meant to make these reforms legal. And like so much of the Scottish crisis, Charles misjudged the extent of his authority. Members of Parliament continued to meet in Edinburgh and debate legislation. And in 1640, the Covenant of Tables established the General Convention which then created the Committee of Estates, which then declared that Charles had no right to extend the prorogation of Parliament. When that Parliament duly reconvened, it declared itself lawful and proceeded to ratify all the changes the various provisional bodies had put into place. Signing the National Covenant became a requirement for public office. Parliament would meet every three years whether the King summoned it or not, and the Army of the Covenant Was implicitly permitted to invade England. We also saw how the Covenanters successfully blocked Charles' diplomatic appeals to his relatives in France and Denmark. They turned these potential allies into, at best, neutral parties, and in the case of France, covert supporters of the Covenanters. Today, we're going to see what happened in England and Ireland while all of this was going on. It's been a while since we looked at English affairs but if you recall, Charles had not called an English Parliament since dissolving his third one in 1629. This was the dramatic occasion when the Speaker of the House of Commons was held down in his chair, preventing him from ending the session until the critics of the government had had their say. Charles had since done his utmost to rule without Parliament for the last ten years, and had come up with some ingenious ways of raising money without parliamentary taxation. Old feudal dues were dug up and enforced, land deeds unearthed and used to issue fines, recusancy fines for Catholics quintupled, and most famously, the ancient levy of ship money was demanded annually and from counties across England. All this kept the financial ship of state afloat, and also paid for the construction of several actual ships too. But it was a patchwork affair. Collectively, it raised just enough for the king but it relied on dozens of unpopular, obscure, or unconstitutional methods to do so, and it was only sufficient for peacetime. So, as the Scottish crisis hurtled towards war, Charles had to decide. Would he break his decade-long streak of parliamentless rule? Or would he become the first King of England since Edward II in 1323 to go to war without parliamentary backing? By this point, it shouldn't come as any surprise that Charles opted for the latter in the run-up to the First Bishop's War. He exploited to the hilt any non-parliamentary income he could find. To raise his army, he called on the nobility to muster at York with both cavalry and infantry, demanded that the northern counties provide feudal levies, and enforced scootage, which required that knights pay a fee in lieu of military service. As we saw last season, Charles had managed some reforms of the Lord Lieutenancies and the county militias, and the Privy Council ordered the mustering of the militias of 13 northern counties. These were placed under the command of royally appointed officers, and were supplemented by troops from the trained bands of the more southern counties. However, there were serious issues with these methods. Firstly, the militias were the backbone of Charles' forces, but they were meant for local defence, not for campaigns outside of their home counties. Where the option was given for militia members to pay the cost of a substitute to take their place, it was worryingly popular. In these cases, instead of a man with some experience in drill and weaponry, there was a conscript with none of either. Summoning the nobility might have been an effective measure two centuries ago but in the wake of the Wars of the Roses and a general centralising trend within England, the nobility were no longer the militarised class they'd once been. For generations, nobles had been in royal service not on the battlefield, but increasingly in governance. Now, this isn't to suggest the aristocracy were all now peace-loving hippies who didn't know one end of a sword from the other, but there wasn't a deep well of military experience and expertise. Similarly, it had no longer been necessary to maintain serious numbers of personal levies, and indeed, this had been looked on with suspicion by the Crown. It was dangerous for nobles to have their own source of military power. So, when Charles summoned 115 peers, 17 of them tried to avoid service, and only a few turned up at York with sizeable retinues. Cavalry, in particular, were in short supply. To add salt to the wound when Charles tried to have his forces swear a new oath of loyalty, critics such as Viscount Say and Seeley declared that he had no right to do so without the consent of Parliament. So, while the Covenanters were instituting the latest military innovations and methods of recruitment, Charles had to rely on the legacies of England's feudal past. And that is before we even get into the question of money because, as we've seen time and time again, war is bloody expensive, even when a monarch has a working relationship with Parliament. Parliamentary subsidies were the most effective way to fund a war, and so Parliament's control of the purse strings have been a powerful motivator for kings to listen to their subjects' grievances. But Charles did not have a working relationship with Parliament. He'd spent the last ten years not only ignoring their grievances, but adding to them in his efforts to rule without a parliament. At this point, he was scraping the barrel of his prerogative incomes. Voluntary, and even involuntary loans were drying up, and fines and other exactions had already been tapped. Not only because in many cases the money was genuinely not there, but Charles had burnt through so much goodwill over his personal rule. One such example, which I alluded to at the time, was the revocation of Londonderry from the City of London. Through this, plus the regular exactions of ship money and other legally dubious measures, the city was thoroughly displeased with their king. The Common Council of London bluntly refused to contribute to the war, quote, in regard of the many taxes imposed on them and the loss of their lands at Londonderry, end quote. So, it's no surprise that Charles fell far short of his expected 30,000 men when the First Bishops' War began, and that those he did have were barely trained, armed, or experienced. Even supplemented with Continental veterans and with a number of veteran Scottish generals on his side, it's possibly for the best that the King took his officer's advice after Dunn's Law. The pacification of Berwick and its promised General Assembly and Parliament bought the King time after the two bodies met, with the first confirming the Covenanter reforms, and the second having to be bogged down in procedure to stop it ratifying them, it was clear that if Charles could not reconcile himself with the Covenanter regime, it would once again come to war. Charles finally bowed to the inevitable, and for the first time in a decade, he agreed to call an English Parliament. But it was not so simple. Charles was many things, but he wasn't an idiot. Stubborn, yes, and sometimes a bit naive, but he was well aware that when the Parliament of England met, it would have an entire decade of grievances, ready to pelt at the Crown, like so many rotten eggs. So since he couldn't avoid a Parliament, Charles prepared the ground as best he could. Since Parliament's main advantage was its ability to grant, or withhold, taxation, the King tried to climb out of the financial hole he dug himself. The logic being, the less obviously desperate he was for money, the stronger his position would be when he met with Parliament. This was possibly more of a concern for those councillors who knew that they would be targets of retribution, Lord and Wentworth chiefly among them. If the king was at the mercy of the Commons purse strings, he might not be able to protect them. And so Charles and his councillors once again scraped the barrel for every drop of liquid cash they might have missed. A loan of £300,000 was negotiated from Spain, in return for aid against the Dutch. We'll return to this at the end of the episode. The Spanish were also permitted to recruit 3,000 Irish to serve in their armies. Charles's councillors opened their own purses to the king, and pledged another £3,000 in the form of a loan. But, as we've already seen, Other forms of extra-parliamentary income, such as loans and gifts from the City of London, were increasingly hard to collect. The Bishop's Wars also marked the effective end of ship money. The policy had been straining since the Hamden case, which had been such an embarrassingly close call for the King. Even for those who accepted the result of the Hamden case and considered ship money legitimate, the process of collecting it collapsed as the Kingdom mobilised for war. With the pacification of Berwick, and the general expectation that a parliament would now finally have to be called, it became even more difficult to justify ship money. It had always been a stopgap measure, an emergency tax which would be made obsolete once parliament granted subsidies. With a parliament on the way, why pay twice? And then there was Charles' third kingdom, Ireland. Not only would Irish taxation boost the King's financial position and so reduce his dependency on his English subjects, but such taxation would have political benefits too. As Harris puts it, quote, It was a deliberate attempt to play the two kingdoms off against each other. End quote. If, in this time of crisis, the Irish Parliament displayed its loyalty by quickly voting taxation, it might spur the English Parliament to do likewise. But was such loyal generosity going to come from Ireland? As we've covered, Ireland had its own quarrels with the crown, some shared by its fellow Stuart kingdoms, but others wholly unique to Ireland. Once again, the interconnectedness of the three kingdoms caused something of a headache for the governments. If you recall our Crisis in Monthly Installments episode, the resistance to Charles's religious policy gained reinforcements from Ireland, particularly Ulster. Here, James VI and I's efforts to create a British community of English and Scots had serious repercussions 30 years later. Wentworth and Archbishop Bramwell complained bitterly about the non-conformity of the Scots, even before the Scottish crisis began. Once it did so, though, the non-conformists took heart from the resistance of their co-religionists what successes the authorities had had in enforcing conformity was rapidly undone. Bramall wrote to Lord about the effect affairs in Scotland had had in Ireland, with this quote, contagion, end quote, having spread throughout the counties of Connor and Down, as well as elsewhere. One Scot was brought before Castle Chamber, and sentenced to a £10,000 fine to be pilloried and to have his ears cut off and his tongue pierced after he slandered the Queen. While the mutilation was commuted after Henrietta Maria's own intervention, he was still imprisoned, and Harris argues that this case shows how nervous the Dublin government was about its Scottish subjects. Such suspicion came to a head in April 1639. A petition came to Dublin on behalf of Divers of the Scottish Nation Inhabiting Ireland, which condemned the National Covenant and requested a chance to prove their loyalty, through swearing an oath. Lord Deputy Wentworth thought that this was a wonderful idea. Of course, the petition was entirely orchestrated by Wentworth, so of course he thought it was a great idea. It was decreed that all Scots living in Ireland over the age of 16 were to swear such an oath of loyalty. This was the Black Oath, so called by its critics, and after the pacification of Berwick, The number of Scots taking the oath rapidly dropped off, with many opting to leave the Ulster colonies and return to Scotland. This had a damaging effect on the local economy, and they were welcomed by the Covenanter government. But aside from the northern plantations, Ireland as a whole appeared to be fairly peaceful and prosperous. A parliament was called in 1640, and the Dublin government had a sizeable majority of support. Wentworth had now finally been awarded the earldom he'd requested before leaving England, and so from January 1640 he was the Earl of Stratford, and from now on I'll refer to him as Stratford. So, Stratford opened the session in March 1640, and he did so in the same way he'd done in 1634. He demanded taxation, with grievances to be addressed in a subsequent session. The government majority was supplemented by the Catholic MPs, who, despite still smarting over the betrayal of the Graces, were much more concerned by the potential of a victory for the rapidly anti-Catholic Covenanters. Four subsidies of £45,000 each were unanimously voted to pay for an Irish army of 9,000 men, most of whom were Catholic. This was then followed by a declaration from the House of Commons, which stated their loyalty to Charles and their satisfaction with his rule. It was effectively a declaration of war on the Covenanters. Parliamentary taxation was supplemented by six subsidies from the Irish clergy. I can almost imagine Charles as a disapproving parent. See, English Parliament, look how good the Irish are! Why can't you be more like them? That English Parliament had been delayed to allow the Irish counterpart to meet and set a good example, but in April 1640, the new MPs finally gathered after hotly contested elections. There were 62 electoral contests, which Harris points out was an unprecedented number. Despite the hard work of the Crown to support its candidates, they fared badly across multiple constituencies, 17 candidates were put forward by the Duchy of Cornwall. All but three were defeated. Out of 38 government-nominated candidates across England, only 11 were elected. Critics of the government enjoyed the opposite result. Names familiar to us by now, the Earls of Warwick and Essex, Viscount and Seely, Lord Brooke, had most of their candidates elected. This was nothing like a modern election campaign, and the electorate was, after all, a vanishingly small minority of the population. Nevertheless, candidates, and their backers, sought to make their case to the voters, and for the critics of the court, these centred around complaints we've heard plenty about. Religious innovations, monopolies, impositions, ship money, the revival of costly fines such as those for the distraint of knighthood and building outside of ancient boundaries – Pamphlets and petitions were distributed listing these as the reasons to vote against church papists and ship and once selected to attend Parliament, critics of the regime took these documents to support their complaints. However, if Charles had his way, they wouldn't get a chance to air those complaints in this session. Stratford, who had returned from Ireland immediately after proroguing that Parliament on the 31st of March, had shown that it was possible to control a Parliament and to demand supply before considering grievances. And so, Charles opened this first session of the Parliament of England in eleven years. How did he mark such a grand occasion? With some very brief remarks, highlighting the quote, great and weighty cause which England faced. He then departed the hall and left the Lord Keeper, John Finch, to inform Parliament of the specifics. This was the same John Finch who had been the Speaker of the House of Commons eleven years ago, when he'd been physically restrained while government critics made their case. He's since appeared in our narrative as one of the judges in the Hamden trial, where he'd been one of those who found in favour of the King. His loyal service had meant promotion from the King and contempt from the Opposition. Charles could have hardly picked a more antagonising figure, a reminder of that last parliament so long ago, and a defender of one of Charles' most unpopular policies. Lord Keeper Finch urged the Commons to focus their attention on granting the King's supply, in both taxation subsidies as well as legitimising the King's collection of tonnage and poundage. After all, he'd been collecting this illegally since coming to the throne in 1625. Charles hoped that his English subjects would be suitably concerned about a Scottish invasion, and indeed the looming war was depicted as a war between England and Scotland. As we saw last time, this is not accurate, but it had sticking power. Strafford agreed with this assessment, perhaps overestimating how many English still saw the Scots as a traditional enemy, and certainly underestimating the strength of feeling which had built up during personal rule. So, when the Lord Keeper urged for taxation to be granted quote, with all speed, the reception in both houses was not at all like it had been in Dublin. Instead, it was much more like the Parliaments of the 1620s, and the majority of MPs insisted that taxation could only be granted in exchange for the resolution of grievances. John Pym held the floor for two hours, as he gave a speech listing dozens of complaints that Charles' subjects had with their king. In the Lords, there was much more support for the king's agenda, but even here there were several influential critics of Charles. Say in Seeley, Brooke, Warwick, Essex, these Puritan lords were sympathetic to, and perhaps colluding with, the Covenanters as a means to ensure constitutional reforms within England. If Charles won an outright victory, then who knew when he would call another parliament? Who knew what damage he could do to the liberties of England in that time?
1: Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realized that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favorite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now and can you guess the twist?
0: Last episode, I mentioned a letter which the Covenanters had attempted to send to Louis XIII, but which had been intercepted by royal agents in April 1639. This was the Aura letter, and Charles kept this ace up his sleeve. Instead of immediately making the contents known, it was kept quiet until the English Parliament met twelve months later. Now, Charles revealed it as part of his scaremongering strategy, It proved, the king claimed, that the Scots, not the Covenanters, but the Scots, had requested military aid from the French against England, not the king, but England. Clearly, the old alliance was being revived, the ancient enemies of Albion were joining hands once more, and so the chamber erupted into a spontaneous performance of the St Crispin's Day speech from Henry V. Of course, that's not what happened. As Murdoch and Grosjean put it, quote, the English Parliament was unconvinced by Charles's interpretation and the letter was largely ignored." End quote. The Covenanters worked their own PR magic when they published the Remonstrance concerning the present troubles, addressing it to the English Parliament. In this document, which you can read online, the Covenanters justified their position and their actions over the previous year. They had intended no rebellion against the king. Yet Charles had been led astray by evil counsellors. In the remonstrance, both Lord and Strafford are explicitly blamed for this. The remonstrance also included the full and original text of the O'Rah letter, and convincingly denied royalist claims that it was a request for anything other than mediation. It also did what it could to justify the future acts of the Army of the Covenant, and insisted that the Covenanters were not the enemies of the English. Sympathetic MPs such as Pym championed the Covenanter view in Parliament. It helped that many of the arguments made in the Remonstrance, such as blaming Stratford and Lord for the problems facing both England and Scotland, were already popular in both houses. It was, pun intended, preaching to the converted. So, all of this is to say that Charles was not able to appeal to English national pride. If he wanted Parliament to pay for crushing the Covenant of Rebels, he would have to compromise. Grievances would have to be heard, and only then would the Commons vote taxation. Charles bitterly complained to the Lords that the Commons, quote, have put the cart before the horse, end quote. After all, quote, my necessities are so urgent that there can be no delay, end quote. He was eventually convinced by his Privy Council and pragmatic allies in Parliament that he had to offer something. So, on the 4th of May, Charles made an offer. As tradition dictated, a convocation of the Church had gathered at the same time as the Parliament. Charles would announce to that convocation that there would be no more innovations. He would also allow an appeal of the Hampden case in the House of Lords. In return, Charles wanted 12 subsidies, £1.2 million, which was an eye-watering amount of money. This was estimated to be enough for a 12-month campaign, and perhaps, if this deal had been offered early on, it might have been accepted. But Charles guaranteed nothing, and the Commons did not trust him. Debates over whether to grant taxation continued long past the deadline, and so on the following day, on the 5th of May 1640, Charles dissolved Parliament. He complained that the Commons had fallen into, quote, bargaining and contracting, end quote, when they should have freely supported their monarch against a rebellion. He blamed, quote, seditiously affected men, end quote, for leading the rest of the House astray. The first English Parliament in 11 years had lasted only three weeks. David Smith, in his The Stuart Parliaments, points out that despite occurring more than a decade after the others, and only six months before its successor parliament, the short parliament is best seen as the finale of the parliaments of the 1620s. Many of the same grievances that drove critics of James and Charles then were the same now. Monopolies, impositions, corruption, religion, foreign policy, unpopular councillors, and, uniquely to Charles, tonnage and poundage. Personal rule had only added a raft of complaints that fit into these pre-existing themes. And of course, the short Parliament began and ended in the same way as its predecessors from the 1620s, at the King's pleasure. Charles called Parliament to meet, and then he dissolved it, and his authority to do so was not questioned, despite dozens of grievances remaining unaddressed. Charles would not be able to do this ever again. Smith sums up the legacy of this short-lived gathering quite nicely. For Charles, the dissolution was a disaster, for it marked the point at which he began to lose control of events. In the summer of 1640, he could have either granted concessions to Parliament in order to gain supply, or concessions to the Scottish Covenanters in order to end the conflict. The only option that was not viable was to grant concessions to neither and launch a second campaign against the Scots without parliamentary supply, yet that was exactly what Charles did. End quote. We'll finish off the day with yet another public humiliation for Charles. In October sixteen thirty nine, a Spanish fleet was sheltering in an anchorage off the coast of Kent, the Downs. They were blockaded by a Dutch fleet. Watching both and with orders to try and prevent a battle was Sir John Pennington with the command of several of the newest ships in the English fleet. Charles was trying to be a friend to both Spain and the Netherlands, and England was officially neutral. But now their war had come to English shores, and quite literally. The best case for Charles was to prevent any violence between the two, though how exactly Pennington was meant to achieve this miracle is a mystery. Pennington would blame the weather for preventing him from trying. Because, despite the expressed wishes of Charles, and despite the fact that both fleets were in the waters of neutral England, the Dutch attacked the Spanish, and the Spanish were utterly defeated. The Battle of the Downs was a nightmare for Charles. Zach Twomley, in his book For God or the Devil, puts it nicely, The King's inaction in that incident was another clear manifestation of his powerlessness. He could not risk his navy, since he did not wish to seek the funds to pay for another. He could not risk war with either power, since he did not wish to ask Parliament for funds to pay for an army. These considerations seriously hampered the king's freedom of manoeuvre, and meant that he could do little more than issue weak protests against the conduct of his neighbours. Being on the losing side, the Spanish were particularly unimpressed with Charles's timidity, as Madrid's ambassador in London noted that the Downs affair had occurred, quote, "...in his own port, underneath his own artillery, before the eyes of his own fleet," and in spite of his announced intentions." That this event occurred in the months before the English Parliament met, when ship money was destined to be on everyone's mind, to have English naval honour embarrassed so thoroughly, and English claims to sovereignty of the seas ignored so blatantly, well, it only added to the complaints. At least if the English fleet had done something, ship money would at least have some justification. As it was, inaction just left Charles looking impotent. Next time, we will see what happens after the short Parliament is dissolved. Before the end of 1640, Parliament would again be summoned, but in the span of just a few months, the situation had entirely changed. Remember that you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter, links will be in the description of this episode. You can also email me at podbritannica at gmail Thank you to everyone who's left a review on Apple Podcasts or their favourite podcast app. Thank you to my royal favourites, Andrew Shoemaker and Mike Sanders, the Duchess of Devon, Michelle Gersich, the Royal Headsman, executed today, the Duke of Clarence, Rory Martin, the Duke of Ormond, Brendan Bonner, the Marchioness of Scullion, Lady Jennifer, the Marquess of Hereford, Christopher Remo, the Marquess of Queensbury, Brent Sitz, and the Marquess of Southampton, Alan Goldstein. Thank you to my entire House of Lords, especially those I haven't mentioned. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music used in today's episode, and thank you to you for listening.